Biden's Summit of the Americas last week was a total failure, with several countries boycotting the event that his office described as a way to forward his own agenda. In contrast, the counter-summit that was held simultaneously, the People's Summit for Democracy, was a huge success, bringing together from all over the Americas leaders, organizers, union members, journalists, and people of all stripes in Los Angeles last week to discuss the real issues facing our continent. The Socialist Program was at the People's Summit and recorded individual interviews with prominent authors, researchers, and organizers. Today, we'd like to share one of those interviews with you. Brian spoke with Roberto Lovato, the author of Unforgetting, a groundbreaking memoir the New York Times picked as an editor's choice. Newsweek listed Lovato's memoir as a must-read, and the LA Times listed it as one of its 20 best books of 2020. Lovato is also a journalist and a visiting professor of English at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. A recipient of a reporting grant from the Pulitzer Center, Lovato has reported on numerous issues, violence, terrorism, the drug war, and the refugee crisis, from Mexico, Venezuela, El Salvador, Dominican Republic, Haiti, France, in the United States, among other countries. Here's Brian's interview with Roberto Lovato. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome back to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We're here at the Los Angeles People's Summit for Democracy. We're going to be talking with journalist, educator, author, Roberto Lovato. He is the author of the book, Unforgetting. Roberto, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you and glad to be here at the uh, summit. Yeah. And this is one of two summits. Uh, Not so far from here, Joe Biden is hosting the so-called Summit of the Americas. You know, Biden decided who from the Americas is eligible to come from this summit for the Summit of the Americas. Big part of the Americas are excluded. Uh, Maybe Joe Biden thought this was 1922 instead of 2022 because whatever he was hoping for, it didn't seem to work out too much. A lot of people decided, well, if Cuba's excluded, if Venezuela's excluded, Nicaragua's excluded, I don't want to come. Yeah, it's, uh, as we say in Spanish, es un fracaso desde arriba y un éxito desde abajo. It's a failure from above and a success from below. So the failure from above is a failure of hemispheric and continental proportions, a global embarrassment for the Biden administration and for the United States as a whole. It represents, I think, the ongoing shifts in geopolitical power on on planet Earth. And the United States is clear in, in a degenerate phase, a decline of its power as reflected internally by, say, the Trump evangelical fanaticism has taken hold of our political culture and externally in things like the fact that Latin America refuses to obey the dictates of Biden administration and the United States. It's it's not new. You have to remember that Latin America is hands down the most insurgent part of the planet. Mm. Really, it's the most insurgent continent on the planet. You know, in terms of revolutionary and organizing activity. Mm. And it's, you know, poor Latin America, you know, so far from God, so close to the United States. But I think 
good for Latin America, so close to the United States, knows the United States intimately, and has known how to fight it and win. We won in El Salvador during the war when I, when I was there. Yeah, you know what, it's just so interesting what you said because Latin America knows the United States, but the United States, outside of the Latin American population, doesn't really know uh, the continent. And I think this is also emblematic of one of the problems of Biden or Blinken, the people who are the big policymakers. They think because they're big, they're powerful, the U.S. spends $800 billion every year on the military, it's got a, an economy of 22 trillion. Like when they speak, everybody is going to genuflect. Everybody's going to bow or scrape or whatever. And that's clearly not happening. Mexico didn't come. AMLO said no. The Caribbean said no. I mean, again, 199 years ago, James Monroe issued what was called the Monroe Doctrine. From then on, Latin America was supposed to be America's backyard. Latin America doesn't want to be anybody's backyard. Well, Latin America has a very strong insurgent tradition. I mean, in my book, Unforgetting, it's a memoir, and I, as a U.S. citizen, have kept secret my entire adult life that I was a member of the FMLN guerrillas. Mm. I come out of it in the book because I felt like it's time for people to understand what a heartbeat of a revolutionary feels like in the United States. You know, I participated in that liberation movement and I kept silent about it because I didn't feel it was safe. And now I feel like it's still not as safe as I'd like, but we need to kind of understand that insurgent sensibility in the Americas right now, here in the U.S., as the, as the United States itself starts resembling a Latin American country, you know, in terms of the division between rich and poor, which is surpassed. If you look at the division between rich and poor in the U.S., it surpasses the division between rich and poor in Latin America. You know, as the U.S. becomes Latino-Americanizado, we should be adopting Latin American organizing techniques, and so that's why I decided to, to write this book. And I think the fact that Bolivia, Mexico, the U.S.'s largest and most important trading partner in the Americas have decided to skip this in terms of their heads of state, that's major. Like, the, the heads of state who speak for hundreds of millions of people in the Americas are not here. That basically says that we've taken a risk in the Americas and we can take that risk and get away with it. And you're still going to have to deal with this United States. It's profound. It's, it's, it continues the sensibility of independence and, and, and insurgency in the Americas. It's, what's not new, you know, what's new is the, the level of cohesion across the continent in terms of the governments and their coordination and, and and disposition to fight for their own interests. And I think you have to weigh in the factor of China as well. China's influence, especially in South America, for example, allows Latin American countries to say, well, you know, we don't only have to trade with the United States. Brazil's biggest trading partner is not the U.S., it's China. The biggest investor in Brazil is China. The Belt and Road Initiative, it's a game changer at a global scale where China is doing things the United States has traditionally done, which is funding and building infrastructure. They're building 5G networks and doing things the United States, you know, kind of did, but they're doing it without all the counterinsurgent politic of the United States in Latin America, which I witnessed firsthand during the war in El Salvador. The, the, you know, the counterinsurgency culture of the United States has killed 80,000 people during the war in El Salvador. 
200, 250,000 in Guatemala, Argentina, Uruguay, the, the, the record of death and mass destruction of millions of people in the Americas is not been erased. I think that's what you see here. Mm. At, a, at, a, at the level of historical memory and culture, the Americas, no nos hemos olvidado. We have not forgotten what the United States has done. And there was nothing you can do to erase that from our hearts and minds. Let me pick up on that theme because, you know, Donald Trump said to the Venezuelan people, look, Maduro is not your president any, anymore. Juan Guaido is your president. Joe Biden, even though he's not Donald Trump, he's not a Republican, he's maintained the same policy. Matter of fact, even in the last couple of days, he's called Juan Guaido and reaffirmed the fact that Juan Guaido is the president. Now, obviously, that's nonsense. Obviously, that's not true. Juan Guaido never ran for president. But when you think about what America used to do, say, 100 years ago, there was an invasion of Haiti, invasion of Cuba, invasion of Nicaragua, so many military interventions by the United States directly with American troops into Latin America. But they can say whatever they want about Venezuela. But if the U.S. sent troops, Yankee troops, to Latin America, it would have a continent-wide impact and uprising, and that's a limitation on American power that the current administration should appreciate, but certainly they don't seem to appreciate, even though obviously there is this extreme limitation on what America can actually do. Yes, they can send money to the countries, they can send the money to the military dictatorship in El Salvador to fight you and to fight others fighting for freedom, but they can't actually send American troops. Anyway, that's what I think. What do you think? Well, I agree. I mean, but, you know, that's, that's a reflection of the cohesion in the Americas around certain things. People do agree that U.S. intervisionism has gone out of style. <laughs> it's not fashionable anymore to be imperialist in the Americas. It's unfashionable. And you see this in the, in the way that, for example, the OAS's support for the coup in Bolivia has been thoroughly exposed, documented, and critiqued across the continent. You see it in, you know, the, the unity of, of many countries in not accepting this as a legitimate forum. This OAS-sponsored summit that's just a few blocks from us, so Summit of the Americas, is no longer increasingly considered a legitimate forum. There's more, more and more countries in the Americas are looking to groups like CELAC as a forum for Latin American debate, dialogue, and policy coordination and stuff. And this is good. And I think what we're doing here at the People's Forum reflects a bottom-up version of, you know, the way things should be, for example. You know, I, I could talk about the insurgent continent of America, of America with an accent on the E. And I, I like to see us, I'm a U.S. citizen, I was born here. I like to see us here in the U.S. as the northern front of the insurgent continent of America. There's 60 million Latinos here in the United States, for example. Buying power of greater than most countries in the Americas. And we're only now starting to be recognized by countries in Latin America. And I think you're gonna see more of that where kind of the ideals of say, the kind of vision that Pablo Neruda put in, um, or Gabriela Mistral, the great Nobel laureate, or the Bolivarian vision of Simon Bolivar, or later Hugo Chavez, and the, the, the concept of Abi Ayala, all these forms of what I call continental consciousness have never been exterminated, even by the most powerful country on earth. And now that energy is still 
resurgent, insurgent, and hopefully including here in the U.S. Roberto, when, uh, when the Cuban Revolution happened and Fidel and the others from the July 26th movement came to power January 1st, 1959, almost immediately the U.S. began plans, this was under the Eisenhower administration, to overthrow the government. I mean, Fidel had come to Wall Street, he was making overtures, didn't say he was a socialist. That only happened later in 1961 after the invasion of the Bay of Pigs. You know, the Cuban Revolution, it wasn't clear that it was socialist, and yet the U.S. went to war against it. And some people say, well, this is the relic of a Cold War mentality. Well, the Cold War is over, so there is no more Cold War. And yet the U.S. has the same level of hostility towards Cuba. And it gets to the point that I think you were making, which is that the struggle by the U.S. against people, the insurgency in Latin America, isn't only because of anti-socialism or anti-communism. If people don't want to be following the dictates of the U.S., if they want to breathe free, if they want to be independent people, as Cuba was going to be under Fidel and after that revolution, they become the targets. Absolutely. I mean, we're here at the Summit of the Americas, and what are some of the major topics they want to talk about? They want to One of the topics is COVID. How do you handle COVID? You know, what are the best practices in the Americas? Well, who are the hands-down champions of how to deal with COVID in the Americas? Cuba. Yeah. They have 96% rate of vaccination. They have exported 5,000 doctors throughout the Americas and the world, more than the United States. The only country in the Americas, despite the blockade. Mm. Whatever you think about Cuba and the Cuban Revolution, those accomplishments and others cannot be denied. And yet you're trying to, as we say in Spanish, tapar el sol con un dedo. You're trying to cover up the sun with one finger. You're, you, you're trying to hide the fact that Cuba has to be in the conversation about COVID. It's a global pandemic. They know what they're doing. They can school people here in the United States about how to deal and they don't have the multi-billion dollar research think tanks and medical industrial complex that the United States has. And even with all that, the United States has a deplorable, disgraceful record in COVID apartheid. Here and then hoarding COVID vaccines from the rest of the world. So in the case of COVID, in the case of, you know, the United States wants to paint a picture of itself as being you know, the city on a hill still, the place that shines forth in freedom and economic development. And all that. But that's not obvious. And one of the beautiful things about the Trump era, and I rarely use the word beautiful and Trump in the same sentence. One of the beautiful things about the Trump era is it makes obvious the degeneracy of the United States, the decadent empire that is the United States now. It's obvious to the world. Donald Trump helped a lot with that. I think as did Barack Obama. Like I work, I'm a Central American, my family's from El Salvador, I've covered, I exposed like a lot of the policies that a lot of journalists didn't want to talk about in the Obama era when he became the great deporter. A lot of people didn't know, you know, and like things like I was reporting on the fact that the person that started the policy of mass caging, mass separation of children was not Donald Trump as exposed in the media, U.S. media, massively. It was one of the most biggest stories in 2018. It was not Donald Trump. It was Barack Obama who did it without the gaze of the U.S. media. Mm. There's a report by um, Race Forward, which used to be the 
Applied Research Center, ARC, that documents this is one of my sources about child separation. And so, I mean, the fact that the United States has become so decadent that it sees, it greets Guatemalan, Salvadoran, and Honduran children ex fleeing extreme violence by caging them and separating from them from their mothers and parents. It shows how decadent morally, politically, ideologically this country is, emotionally and spiritually. I mean, that's why you get this cancer of fascistic Christianity, evangelical Christianity, rising right now in the United States. It's a sign of decadent culture. So I think that, you know, Ukrainian children, look at, let's look at what, how Central American children fleeing extreme violence are greeted. And let's compare it to the way Ukrainian children and mothers fleeing extreme violence are greeted, night and day. It's not just a matter of race, however. It's a matter of empire and the raison d'etat, the reasons of state. The United States feels like it needs to have a big victory against Russia in, in, in kind of this newfangled, I don't want to call it a Cold War. I don't have a, the language for it. I think we need to develop new language to understand this new moment and not just put a Cold War frame on it. So, but you know, whatever we want to call it, the fact is the United States is trying to, is gunning for a victory against Russia and trying to push it into decline in this geopolitical shift that it then has to pivot and start facing, you know, the King Kong of adversaries, quote unquote, for the United States, which is China. Yeah. And so, you know, I've spent some time in China. I speak a little bit of Mandarin, actually. And, you know, the way that the United States paints China in, in, in its media is... It is, 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 is artificial as it paints Latin America and its other adversaries. This, this seems a little bit off topic, but since we're talking about Ukraine and what the new era is, and not using the old language of the Cold War, because it's not really exactly the same. No, it's not. The U.S. wants to defeat Russia. By the 1960s, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had a certain equilibrium. There was architecture for arms control agreements. This is now an unmanaged rivalry. The U.S. wants to defeat Russia, then go on and defeat China. I mean, when you think about an empire in decline or an empire that's living in a fantasy world, the U.S. could not defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan. And now the U.S. is telling its people, major power conflict, getting ready for war and prioritizing war with Russia and China, that's on our agenda. Meanwhile, you have so many unmet human needs here in the United States. And you have a situation where, as you pointed out, Latin America is not simply a victim of U.S. imperialism. It is an insurgent part of the planet, perhaps the most insurgent part. So there's a lot of fires burning for the empire. And yet, instead of sort of taking stock and having some humility, if anything, they're putting their foot on the gas. I mean, we've entered a dangerous period. Extremely dangerous, but also one very pregnant with opportunity for those of us committed to a better world. I think the race to the bottom, the fiery decline of the United States, combined with the heating up of everything with climate change, actually creates an opportunity for the radical imagination to rise to the occasion of defeating the structures of empire. So, no, I hear you. And I, and I think that when we're here at the People's Summit for Democracy, you see people from Argentina, from Brazil, from El Salvador, from Mexico, 
and lots of people from Los Angeles and other parts of the United States. So San Francisco, San Francisco. And you can really sense a certain optimism. All these young people here, organizers, grassroots people. Yeah, the crisis is dangerous. The, the war danger, big. Climate catastrophe, very big. Lots of crisis, but a certain sense of optimism, which hasn't really for some time existed. There were, you, in order for people to make change, they have to believe that what they're doing can make a difference. And you can't feel like you're making a difference if you have no hope. And the hope and the optimism go hand in hand. I'm gonna give you the final word. You've been here for a couple days. This People's Summit is gonna continue. Direct actions are taking place at the other uh, summit. We've already seen some of that, the confrontation with the OAS director. And with Blinken over Haiti, over the coup in Bolivia, you name it, over the immigration policy. Here we are, People's Summit, you're a journalist, you're an author, you're an educator, you are part of the liberation struggle, fighting to help free the people in El Salvador, where your family is from. So where are we in 2022? Are you hopeful? Are you sensing that this could be like one of those inflection moments, a turning point in history? You know, I, you wouldn't know it unless you ask me or unless I, I, I reveal it, but my father died just a few weeks ago. My heart's shattered. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. As, as, as anyone who loved their parents' heart is shattered. But, you know, I was, when I was invited to come, I was like, do I really want to go because of what happened with my dad? And I, you know, I made it a few weeks ago. I made the decision, yeah, I do want to come because I, I knew I would find the insurgent heart of America here, that insurgent part that inspired me to join a, a revolutionary movement. Your book is unforgetting. And when you think about the, the sense of optimism or there's the struggle forward, part of that is our consciousness and our consciousness is what we remember. Mm -hmm. How can people get your book? Anywhere their books are sold, you can find it online. Don't go to Amazon, go to one of the alternative. You can go to any bookstore and ask your uh, person at the, at, the, at the desk to order it if they don't have it. But it's available in, you know, around across the United States and other parts of the world. Thank you for writing the book. We thank you for joining us here on Breakthrough News and, and our program. Roberto Lovato, great honor. My thank pleasure. You. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.